And I talked about you know, how running had changed for me from that data-driven, how fast can I be? How can I control my weight prior to running with others to something that was much more community giving back and almost spiritual as I see it now. Hi, my name is Jeremy Stevens, and this is the For Love of Running podcast. Each episode, I interview one runner and learn their story behind the miles. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Jeremy Stevens. I hope that you all are doing well. In this episode 16, I interview Kevin Frick, whose running began as a miler at Upper Darby High School in Pennsylvania. After a long hiatus, he returned to running to improve his health and lose weight. Over the years, his relationship has transformed from being data-driven, from how fast can I be, and how can I control my weight, to something that is more about community, giving back, and spirituality. Kevin's story is very unique. He has given a TEDx talk about mentorship and its connection to running, and often writes poems about the sport. I hope you enjoy episode 16 with Kevin Frick. Kevin Frick, welcome to the For Love of Running podcast. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Kevin, it's great to finally get a chance to interview you. I think um, years ago, we were connected through Back of My Feet, and we know some people in common. Um, shout out to Lauren Lake who helped kind of set this up. Uh, I believe at some point in time we did maybe meet from afar. It was like a smile and a wave kind of thing, but it'll be good to to hear your story um, behind the miles. So let's just start back at the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a place called Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. It's just outside of Philadelphia. And it's got a wall of fame that uh, I am lucky enough to be part of. But there are three people on the wall of fame where I grew up that I do not compare to at all. Uh, Lloyd Alexander, who wrote a series of children's fantasy books, like the Book of Three, which you may have heard of. Uh, Jim Croce, the famous singer from the 1960s. And Tina Fey was actually one class behind me at Upper Darby High School. That's really cool. My wife's from Ardmore, Pennsylvania, so I'm familiar with the area. And I do know that Tina Fey, you know, grew up around there. So really cool. So not too far from here, a little bit outside of Philly. So kind of right up 95 North. When you were younger, what were some of your interests when you were growing up? So I did a little bit of sports. Uh, I feel like it's a very standard 1970s list of things. You know, everybody played baseball. Uh, I grew up in a family that was very heavily a basketball family. Uh, My grandparents lived in a house with a basketball hoop out back that uh, I got good enough at shooting foul shots. I was able to win a foul shot competition, but never really picked up the basketball bug that the rest of my family had. And when it comes to being rather nerdy, that that would have described me as a kid as early as sixth grade. For some reason, I had an unhealthy obsession with wanting to be my high school valedictorian someday. I succeeded, but I don't necessarily view that as a healthy thing for a sixth grader to ever want to think about. Uh, so I was very focused on on academics uh, before I got into a, a healthier mix between sports and academics, even while I was in high school. But it was nice to have a big goal. So those big goals kind of like connect with running, right? You set those long term goals. Maybe that wasn't the best goal as a sixth grader, like you said, but maybe that translated down the road for you um, personally. 
Oh, I think it did because uh, when I finally got into running, soccer was the other sport that I was in, which again, I thought I was ahead of the curve for most Americans. We had a large Greek immigrant community, first generation Greek immigrant community where I grew up. When I met them, I realized my soccer skills were nothing. Uh, They were way ahead of me. And uh, it was ninth grade. uh, So the spring of 1984, I figured, oh, well, maybe if I could keep up with them better, I could at least, you know, do better out on the soccer field. So I decided to join the track and field team in the spring of 84. That was my first real exposure to running, other than that I had uh, an uncle who had married into the family who would do 10Ks. And I think, I don't remember whether the Broad Street 10-miler goes all the way back that far, but he would do those sorts of distances on a regular basis. And, you know, I just wanted to do a mile. And I remember the very first workout, I I could barely make a three mile run. I thought it was going to be easy. Wrong. Um, I grabbed onto like the shirt of a senior to help me finish out the, that very first workout. Uh, And I think I was lapped at least the first two or three 1600 meter runs that I did for competition in the, in that freshman year. But by the end of freshman year, having seen a minute improvement in my mile time from a 645 to a 545. I realized there was a lot more potential for me in running than in soccer. Through the rest of high school, I continued uh, with running three sports or three seasons rather every year, uh, cross country, indoor and outdoor. Uh, at the time, uh, it was definitely all about you know what I could do in the sixteen hundred. I got down to a four forty one before I graduated high school. Wow, that's speedy. Yes and no. On the one hand, it was a lot faster than where I ended my freshman year with the five forty five. On the other hand, uh, I look back and. The irony of that 441, it was that it was the qualifying heat for the county championships because I was in I was the fifth seed. Top four of that heat were going to make it to the finals the next day. And the four guys ahead of me all basically ran a real even 6970 ish the first three laps. And then I just held that pace while they took off in the fourth lap so they could get whatever times they needed for their seating the next day. Happened to beat my own teammate who was a little under the weather that day. So I felt really bad, but I got into the final heat the next day. And they all went out more like 61, 62. And I wasn't keeping up anywhere near that. And, you know, even my attempt at a 65, 66 first lap, I quickly fell back and, you know, ran closer to 450 for the for the finals the next day. But it was a, a good lesson at an early age that if I could ever learn to keep pace, that would pay off for me. What appealed to you about running the mile or running in general? Running in general, at that time, um, it was all about, uh, it was all measurable. I like data. Um, you know, in my in my job at Johns Hopkins, right now I do more administration, but I grew up as a researcher. And so I like lots of data. And there's lots of data that you can do when it comes to running splits and times and how heavy are you? And when you do your weight workouts, what are you lifting? So tons and tons of data. And I like the sense that it was, you know, it was over fairly quickly. I never really had the speed for the to really be competitive for the 400 or the 800. Uh, my high school would send a team every year to the Penn Relays. Uh, and I never had that. I was never one of the top four guys in the 400 to do that. At the time, I could barely keep up that pace that you would need to be really competitive in the 3200 or, you know, to come anywhere near winning uh, in cross country. You know, I'd help my team score, but I was never near the front. Uh, and so that 1600, for some reason, it was the sweet spot that I had in my own running uh, in terms of. I could keep up just enough and I was fast enough to be, you know, fairly competitive. Um, but like I said, even in the the 10 teams in the central league that we were in uh, up in the Philly suburbs, I mean, there were guys running 420s who went on to be D1 athletes um, and I wasn't going to catch them anytime soon. Sure. Top competition in that last race, you kind of learned 
you know, where you were and where you stood. So having data to analyze and having, you know, those, I guess, numbers to see that improvement, it kind of helps you as any, any level of running helps you want to, you know, keep getting better. So where did you go with your running following high school? So interestingly enough, uh, my dad tried to introduce me to someone who worked in the veterans office at Penn State who was part of a running group. And I think I joined them once, maybe twice. Didn't do a whole lot until senior year when one of my uh, former roommates who had also run high school cross country and I decided to do a 5K. Trying to get back to a 5K after three and a half years of not doing much uh, was an effort for sure. Uh, at least to feel like I was a, running a competitive 5K. It wasn't that hard to go the distance. Then I went to grad school immediately, spent five years out in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan, uh, hit the gym sometimes with my wife and would go on the treadmill or the indoor track in their nice gym, uh, but not really competing. And then uh, the first three years in Baltimore would occasionally hit uh, the YMCA. But from the time that my second son was born in August of 99 until uh, a time that would have been, uh, let's see, how much, how much further along would it have been? 2006. At the end of 2005, I was up to 185 pounds, which is not extremely heavy for somebody uh, at my height, but heavy enough that I, I was not liking where I was. So I started getting back to running in 06. And for the first four and a half years, it was all individual. Back to that data. Uh, you know, how can I bring my weight down? How can I improve my time? Can I get back to the half marathon, which was the furthest I'd ever run in high school? It was sort of our culminating workout of the pre-cross-country season every year. We would hit the three local high schools in the area. And that was a, a fun way to end our, our summer workouts. Uh, got back to that, did the, uh, the running festival half marathon in 2009. Found out that a couple of colleagues had done the full. And I said, well, if they can do the full, I ought to be able to try that out then. Uh, it just a matter of pride at that point. It's a weird way to reward oneself for getting promoted to full professor. But when I found out I had gotten the promotion to full professor in January of 2010, I said, okay, my gift to myself is going to be the time to train for the marathon that fall. And so uh, that was the start of uh, a lot of marathons. And then in the summer of 2010, finally being reintroduced to group running purely serendipitously, uh, a fellow dad at uh, the pre-K through eight school that all three of my boys went to uh, passed away losing his battle to prostate cancer. I decided to fundraise for the American Cancer Society before I even knew about Back on My Feet. They then hooked me up with the uh, training group at Charm City Run. And as they say, the rest is history in terms of being someone who likes group running and running with others ever since then, rather than running on my own. There was a huge gap in time between, I guess, high school and then where you rediscovered running. I think you said in about 2006, where you wanted to improve your health. And then it took another... I don't know, it's at three years or so to where you got into the social groups. Would you say that probably in around 2009 is really when you kind of felt like, hey, this running thing, it's it needs to continue to be a huge part of my life because I'm enjoying it so much? I would say that. I mean, and it's really, uh, I mean, different people get there in different ways. Uh, a lot of people, you know, talk about a runner's high in the past year, I really thought about runner's serenity rather than runner's high. Uh, and that that's the term I like to use for myself. Um, the last of 12 marathons that I've run now was uh, Baltimore 2020, six Baltimore, six others. And uh, for that one, uh, me, uh, another runner named Megan from Back on My Feet, and two of the the members at some of the, the partner facilities uh, were both alum now. Um, 
had uh, started together. And me and Megan said, if they take off at the beginning, neither one of us is trained for that. We both know we've been there at one point in our lives, but we're not trained for that today. They both took off. The one guy ran just over 330. The, the other guy ran just under 340. Uh, we finished in a comfortable 347. And I'll tell you, just, you know, three and three quarters hours traveling around the city, chatting with a friend the whole time. You know, that's, again, I think of it as serenity rather than high. But getting to that point where you just feel like you could do that forever in a day. Uh, it's just a really nice place to be. So that was your last marathon. That was in, you said, 2019? Uh, yes. So last year. There's something about, yeah, when you are running those long distances with another person, and like you said, that feeling of calm and you said serenity where you can almost feel like you don't have to stop. That's really special. And it's, it took you a while to get there. I'm sure I do want to dig more into that marathon journey. Cause there's a lot there. You mentioned before that you loved numbers and you were into research with, with your career and then you became a full professor. So how, how did running or how does running continue to help you in your career um, working for Johns Hopkins? It's helpful in a number of ways. I mean, one, um, it teaches you structure when you want it to. Uh, you know, there have been times in my life when running really was driven by numbers and data and structure. Uh, I worked with a, a coach named uh, Shannon McGinn, who's a wonderful remote coacher who worked with me for my PR in marathons back in 2014. That was not a time of much serenity. That was a time of work, uh, you know, and focus uh, to get down under 310 uh, took uh, took a lot of physical work that she prepared me for, and then uh, a rescue when I had slowed down to near eight minute miles, which for most people would still be a wonderful time to be running in the marathon. But when you slowed that at around mile 22 and you're aiming for that uh, 310, I needed to speed up again. And uh, Jackie Range actually had been hanging out behind me through most of that race. Lauren Lake and another friend from back on my feet saw me at mile 22 and Jackie was probably about 50 feet behind me. They said, you got to go help him finish. She came up on my side and I think she only said, you've got this. But what I heard was, I've been out there with you too many mornings at five o'clock for you not to get this. Um, and somewhere from something, I pulled out all the energy that I needed to get back down around 740s for those last four miles and pulled the sub 310 that I was aiming for. I still would have hit a PR even if I had finished with eights, but that 310 was, a, was that golden goal that I had had. Why the 310? Well, I had had to break 315 to qualify for Boston. Uh, I was able to do that at the Lower Potomac River Marathon in 2011. And then I ran Boston in 2013 and came in just over 315. So by that point, I had run two marathons between 315 and 316 and one just under 315. So, you know, when I, when I decided I was going to work with a coach to go for a goal, uh, I didn't know that I had, and obviously didn't ever prove that I had much faster than another five minutes in me, but I really wanted to see if I could break that next five minute threshold. Gotcha. So what was that journey like for you trying to reach the 310? You said you hired a coach and it was more work than serenity. So what was that process like for you? I mean, that was a process where, um, you know, every Tuesday was a track workout. Every Thursday, she liked progressions rather than tempos. That was her approach to to uh, marathon training. I know um, some other groups like to use tempo runs. Um, progressions, I live not far from you, just a couple of neighborhoods down just inside the city. And uh, you can bet the progressions in our part of the city county area where you got all these hills can always be interesting as you try to continue to knock off you know, 15 more seconds and 15 more seconds off your 
mile times as you go into, you know, mile seven or eight of the workout, those were hard. Uh, you know, the Saturday long runs were, were just that they were supposed to be at a, uh, conversational pace as a, as another coach once phrased it. I used to do a gasping conversational pace. These days, conversational pace really is just that. It was, you know, always seeing, could I make the goal that had been set for a given workout? And if not, then analyzing why not. And that iterative data-driven process of just going, trying, looking at what you've done, and then figuring out how to improve the next time, um, it makes a huge difference. And, And I think if I had anything to go back and do over again in aiming for that 310, it would have been just a little more mental toughness going into the race. Not that I minded having somebody to run those last four miles with me and get me through to that finish line. But I don't know what I would have done in that race if there hadn't been somebody I knew who came along and, and uh, you know, said, let's, let's do this. Sure. Let's talk about that a little bit more. So this is the Philadelphia Marathon. You said it was around mile 22. What was the race day like leading up until that point? Right. How were you feeling and how did it go until you said you were slowing down and then Jackie Range <laughs> came up and really helped push you along? It was a 37 degree, beautiful morning. Uh, I mean, some people don't want to run in 37 degrees. Some people like much warmer running, but for a marathon start temperature, it was the best, one of the best days I could imagine. You know, I had my running sleeves on. I had a very skin tight hat just to, you know, not be cold at the starting line. Um, My coach had said, you might have a 305 in you. I should have just stuck with running for the 310 because the first, you know, 12, 13 miles, I was probably on pace for that 305. I felt great as you run down toward the Delaware River and back out toward University City. Uh, you know, wonderful, wonderful pacing. Uh, you know, as we started then out toward Maniunk, I was doing okay through mile 15. I forget whether it was, I think around mile 17, there's this little bridge. You're going up Kelly Drive and you go over a bridge, do a Yui and back across, you know, one of those little jut outs on the course just to make sure you get the exact 26.2. And the problem was it was downhill going toward the pylon where you had to do the Yui and then back up the hill going the other way. And that uphill at that point just hit me like a ton of bricks uh, around mile 17. And so, you know, then pretty flat and a little bit uphill, you know, as anybody who's run along Kelly Drive in Philly knows, it's, you know, uphill as you go away from the art museum and then downhill when you come back. And just by the time we did that last turnaround, I guess it's between mile 20 and 21, um, I was feeling it, you know, each time I had, I had run. Um, Jackie wasn't running with me stride for stride that race, but each time I could see she's a little closer behind me, a little closer behind me. And so um, I was just feeling it and I was feeling sorry for myself. And I said, I've gotten this point so many times in races. And, you know, and I I always have the problem around here. Uh, And again, just having somebody who was there to say, no, no, you can do this. Just, you know, get your concentration back. Um, And that accountability, sometimes I refer to accountability buddies. Uh, made a huge difference. I have a very similar story for myself. Personally, I ran that, I think it was in 2013. I was trying to hit a PR and I was on pace through the halfway mark. And I remember seeing my wife at the time and I was like, I don't know if I can keep this up. As soon as I said that, it was like (laughs) over. And I had a similar experience where running out towards Maniunk, those little jut outs, because you're running pretty straight. And then all of a sudden you're, you're going off to the left and getting these little extra miles. And I remember, okay, I didn't expect that. And then coming up through Maniunk, it's a slight hill. It's a lot of energy there. It's really a cool part of the course, but then that's the part where people are tired. They're some people are starting to walk. You see ambulances, you see all this stuff. 
And that day, I remember just seeing that. I was like, oh, this is this is just not my day. Looking back on it, I don't think I was trained properly. Um, I didn't put in enough work along the way to, to get the, the PR that I was looking for. But also that mental toughness, I just didn't have it that day. When I ran my first marathon in Baltimore, when I saw those people who were walking, I just remember my head and I keep saying in my head, I'm not walking. Like I've trained for this. I'm good. And that's such a huge part of running, right? The mental, the mental side. It is. And I was able to return the favor for two other runners. So in uh, both 16 and 17, uh, I ran with first timers who were back on my feet runners. Uh, and in 16, while my fastest race was in Philly, Baltimore 2016 was by far my best marathon. Uh, we ran negative splits, uh, and that's really hard to do on the Baltimore course to run the second half faster than the first half. We were meticulous about holding right at eight for the first half. Uh, and then we were able to speed up a little bit going in. I had something left coming you know, down from Waverly toward the end. And I was running with uh, a woman who was trying to qualify for Boston. She needed her 335. We came, our goal was 330 and we came in under 329. So that was the perfectly executed Baltimore Marathon. Again, a very cool day. Uh, and you know, the, only, the only misgiving she had was as we were running across 33rd Street, she says to me, I'm not sure I can feel my legs. I said, okay, if you get feeling any worse, you tell me and we'll slow down. But unless, you know, unless you're feeling really bad, just keep concentrating. We're going to do this together. Uh, and I thought, you know, very much back to where I was with Jackie at mile 22, because you're right around, you know, mile 22 when you're on 33rd Street in Baltimore. The challenge in 2017 is I think it was a good 15 degrees warmer that year. And the first time runner I was going with that year, her goal was also to qualify for Boston. She didn't quite understand how much liquid and salt you need on a warmer marathon day. So we get up to uh, Lake Montebello and uh, you pass the mile 20 marker. And after the race, um, she said, I never would have made it to the end if you hadn't just kept saying, Susie, you can get there. Uh, but she spent an hour in the med tent. And she told me afterwards that uh, that was the slowest 10K she'd run in her life. We, I mean, we were, you know, we'd gone from, you know, whatever, about eight minutes to nines, nine and a halfs for those last uh, 10K. Because uh, she just, you know, had, had bonked basically because of the, uh, the fluids and the salt. And she knew it. And she has since qualified for and run Boston and done some ultras and, you know, done all kinds of amazing things that I admire her for. But that day, I mean, she, it, the picture of the two of us, you know, crossing the finish line and then me stabilizing her. It was not a pretty picture. <laughs> sure. And you said that you've run 12 marathons and that you've had all different levels of success. You've helped other people. What are some of those lessons that maybe you've learned throughout the, the process of, of running these marathons? I guess I'll say a couple things. One, you know, always have a goal and keep that goal in mind and, you know, almost have a goal of running for somebody. I ran uh, Gettysburg the spring that I was preparing for comrades in South Africa. And I'd already qualified and gotten into, you know, a pretty good qualifying space, but I wanted to get into the next level. Um, in the end, it didn't really matter because I had a, a, an acceptable but not great day in South Africa when I ran comrades. But I ran Gettysburg all on my own. Um, so last time I broke 320. And I just kept saying to myself, you know, I had taken a, a little bit of money I'd gotten from uh, when my grandmother passed, used that to fund part of my trip to South Africa. And I said, you know, given my grandmother's can-do attitude in life, I cannot be running for my grandmother and not do this. And so I had finally gotten to that point where at least for a marathon, I could, I could do that mental, you know, holding myself accountable. 
you know, whereas a couple years earlier, as I said, in, in Philly, I needed somebody else to hold me accountable. I think back to running Boston 2013, uh, there's a whole lot of things I could say about Boston 2013, but the race itself, you know, beautiful morning, warm by 10 o'clock. Uh, I know some people like to do it over and over again. I don't plan to ever do it again. Uh, both my wife's not thrilled about the idea of ever being there again, given that the bombing happened that year. And I don't like to start marathons at 10 o'clock in the morning. But, uh, you know, I think back to the hills leading up to Heartbreak Hill. And, you know, that was one of the, the really first times when, you know, I, I was not running quite as fast after Heartbreak Hill as I was beforehand, but really remembering it's not just you get to that top of the hill and then you, you ease off. You get to the top of the hill and you keep going. There's a series of up plateau, up plateau as you get on the way to Heartbreak Hill. And, you know, finally telling myself, you know, just because you've topped it, like I said, it doesn't mean it's time to rest. It's time to figure out how to keep going because you still got a race to run. And, you know, getting back to career issues. I mean, that's just like things in, you know, any career goal. Just because you get that goal, maybe you can take a slight breath, but it doesn't mean that it's time to just sit around and, you know, rest on your laurels. You, you reach that goal and you figure out what's that next goal and how am I going to get there? There's a lot of really great stuff in there that I'd like to unpack a little bit more. Just the one that sticks out to me is 2013 uh, Boston Marathon. That was the year of the Boston Marathon bombing. Where did you finish as far as time in relation to the to the bombing? You finished, so I'm guessing it was obviously before it happened. Can you describe what that day was like maybe before it happened and then after it happened and, and kind of what happened there? So I had traveled up with two local buddies, uh, Rob Santoni and Christian Kreutzer, uh, great guys to run with. Uh, we had a great uh, team of the three of us who drove up together, stayed in a hotel together, uh, you know, traveled to the, uh, the bus together to get ready to go and just relax together that morning. Because, you know, once they ship you out on the bus before seven o'clock, you just you just wait around the rest of the time. The three of us didn't, uh, you know, didn't run much together. Um, again, it was a a comfortable day for running, although, again, lesson learned about getting sunburned if I ever do run another 10 a.m. marathon, and felt like a great race. I finished just under 3.15. Christian was uh, very close to me, and Rob was a few minutes a few minutes after. So we were all done, met up, uh, got to a hotel, went in one of the hotel's restrooms, changed into something warmer, and we were on the tee. And uh, Boston, one thing about the subway in Boston is they've got really good cell reception on the subway, and even back in 2013, they did. And somebody said, oh, there's something about, a, you know, an explosion at the finish line. Nobody knew what it was, a bombing or anything yet. And I will tell you, you've never seen so many people whip their phones out of their pockets or purses that quickly. Once that, you know, little note that somebody said started spreading through the car we were in, I think we didn't even get another two stops on the T before the, you know, the transportation authority up in Boston said everybody out and up to the ground level because they had no idea what was going to come next. So we were still, we were at a hotel out on the outskirts of town rather than a downtown hotel. Thankfully, one of the three of us actually had some cash to pay a taxi cab to get back out to the hotel. They hadn't started shutting the roads down yet. And we were far enough out that we got to the hotel, got, we were able to like use a room for just a half hour so the three of us could all catch a shower and you know feel more comfortable for driving home, watching whatever they had figured out already on the TV in the hotel lobby. And then we hit the road. You know, started the drive back to Baltimore. Uh, we ended up getting home at midnight, had seen just what seemed like a uncountable number of emergency vehicles, you know, headed the opposite direction into Boston as we were driving away from Boston, uh, you know, and, and got back just after midnight and home. 
I remember the very first thing I was able to do when I, when I, you know, you know, I found out what was going on. I just texted my wife, something's going on. I'm okay. <laughs> and she didn't know what to make of that. Cause she hadn't heard the news yet. Uh, you know, she was there, she was waiting to pick up one of my kids at school. She's like, what do I do with this information? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then she got a call from somebody in my family saying, is Kevin okay? And she had no idea what was going on. If I could have told her more, I would have, but literally I had no more to tell her at that point. Cause I didn't know anything. Uh, and I think, you know, to this day, the biggest impact, um, you know, anytime I think about the story of that day um, and when I went to see the, the documentary-ish movie that they made about it was the fact that, you know, one of the, the small number of people who lost his life that day was an eight-year-old boy. And, you know, I've, I've got three sons. The youngest was eight at the time. There was never any chance they were going to come with me to Boston. But that thought of, but what if will always stick with me? Uh, you know, and that's really one of the, one of the lasting things that I take. And, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I love running, but I think about how it fits in with family life. Uh, we were talking about career earlier. I think about how it fits in with career. Uh, and I certainly think about the, the degree to which, you know, the people I run with, uh, week after week are like family and the importance of those close connections and how running can bring people together. Uh, and so, you know, of all the things that came out of that day, like I said, uh, lessons in lessons in getting over plateaus, lessons in being prepared, uh, lessons in how to draw energy from the people around you, um, and lessons in the importance of uh, the people around you as well. Wow, there's a lot there. I appreciate you retelling your experience. Um, like you said, you have a very personal connection. And 3.15 at, at a Boston marathon is, is a good day. So you probably were feeling pretty good. And then, you know, it seems like probably as you progressed and learned more and more, that that felt probably a lot different reflecting on it now than it did when you crossed that finish line. And if I can remember, it was around the four-hour mark, maybe a little bit after the four-hour mark when the, when the bomb went off. Yeah, it was, uh, like I said, I mean, we'd had enough time to, you know, change and be comfortable and, and everything. So it, it was a, it was a good deal after, after that. Um, it was funny The I mean, 315 and change at Boston is nothing to sneeze at, but I'm like, man, I didn't qualify again for next year. I mean, that was, that I was more hard on myself than saying, oh, it's a great first time at Boston. If I wanted to qualify again, I probably could have. Uh, but that's always, you know, being our own worst critic that, uh, that comes along with being a runner or, or many things in life for that matter. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was certainly an interesting, interesting way. And I know several people have told me, well, you should try to qualify again and go up and run in some time when the focus is on, you know, your race and not everything else that happened. Uh, but I, I've, I've come to terms with, you know, I, I don't, I don't need to do it again for my own purposes. That's a good realization to have. And, and like you said, now that you've been through that and you've, you've already completed that challenge, you know, what, what's going to drive you to go through all that hard work again to, to qualify. So that's a, that's a good point. You mentioned before the importance of family. So how do you think running helps you as a parent? You said you're the parent of, you know, three sons and obviously you're married and you're a husband and a lot of demands on your time. So how does running help you as a parent? I would say one of the main things that helps me as a, as a parent is just, it's that time to clear my head. Uh, sometimes that's by myself, uh, you know, especially at the beginning of social isolation. Uh, I was staying in touch with all my running friends, but we weren't doing much running together. And so um, 
I learned all the turns in my neighborhood and the, the two neighborhoods just north of me um, better than I ever thought I was going to because I, I really wanted to be able to run as much as a, as a half marathon without having to cross a major street. And uh, if you get really creative, you can do that where, where I live. And that was a fun way to keep myself challenged while being able to just, you know, get that, uh, get that alone time. It's also, you know, a fun way to teach kids about goal setting, uh, you know, whether it was qualifying for Boston, running Boston, uh, again, that PR in Philly, uh, the two ultras that I've done just to complete those. Uh, none of my kids have really caught the bug. I only have one of three who's uh, really been athletic throughout childhood. His main sport is ice hockey. He could certainly benefit from a little more cardio, but just doesn't doesn't have the bug in him. Maybe he'll get it someday. Uh, my oldest eventually took up biking, uh, but I got him and his girlfriend to run the uh, GVMC Father's Day race with me one year. Uh, and then there was one year when all three of my sons run it. The, the funniest thing about that year was that uh, I had asked my oldest, I said, you could probably just walk and keep up with, uh, with your younger brother. There's a good uh, age distance between them. And uh, what my what I said that because in the previous one previous 5k that my youngest had done, he ran over 40. And I'm like, you know, you got long legs to my then 16 year old. You can you could probably walk just over 40 without working too hard. Uh, the the younger one at the time uh, decided he was actually going to run this one. And so he ran more like a 36 and you can't really walk a 36. He was quite proud of himself for leaving his older brother in the dust that day. So, you know, fun little uh, intro family uh intra-family rivalry that day, but that was the only year all three of them have ever run it with me. Um, the person I've run the Father's Day race with uh, more than any other is actually Lauren. We've run as a as a surrogate father-daughter team. Uh, how many years now? I think it's five out of the last six, um, and this would have been six out of the last seven, except the, the race was canceled this year. Wow, that's really cool. You, like you said, you get that time to think, that time to unwind uh, as a parent, and that's very important. Uh, definitely. You mentioned earlier that you ran Conrad's, the ultra marathon in South Africa. What was that experience like? And can you describe the race a little bit? Yeah. So that was, um, that was, I planned it because I had some work in South Africa and I was able to combine a work trip and a running trip together. Uh, so nothing, you know, nothing better than that. And, and, uh, my closest buddy in South Africa and colleague, you know, drove me from Durban out to Peter Maritzburg. So that was a, a down year. So you start inland in Peter Maritzburg and you go down to the coast in Durban. You know, as most places in the world, if you're running toward the coast, you're going to go downhill, at least on net. Um, as my coach, so that was the second time I used Shannon as a coach. Uh, and, you know, she kept on reminding me throughout, you are going to have some uphills, even though it is net down. Uh, I didn't bother to study the topography as much as I should have until the night before. If you're ever going to run an ultra and you haven't studied the topography already, don't study it the night before because you'll do nothing but scare yourself about what's going to happen. Because uh, it, it did mention what I was reading the night before. Oh, the really big hills start at mile 40. So that's useful to know. I'd been in South Africa a week already. My stomach had been fine until the day before. I don't know what I ate that set my stomach off, but when you've got, you know, stomach issues the day before an ultra, that's not a happy way to start the race. We left, I think, about 3.30 in the morning from Durban, drove out to Peter Maritzburg. It's an amazing start with all these, you know, thousands of people who run this race, uh, both people from South Africa and internationals. I know some of the locals had some gloves on. It was in the mid 40s. Uh, you know, for me, that was, that was like a perfect temperature and I wish it had stayed that way the whole day. It was uh, our Memorial Day weekend, so in the Southern Hemisphere, it's going into the winter. 
but that part of South Africa is more like the Carolinas than uh, Maryland or north of us. So, you know, it got up to a good 65, 70 degrees by the time I finished later that day. So at one point in the race, somebody was just handing out blocks of ice and I just like held it against the back of my neck for a while. When I picked up that block of ice, that was important. You know, Shannon, in addition to helping me, you know, do the miles I needed to be ready, she'd also offered a lot of advice. And, you know, one of her biggest pieces of advice was you have never taken in very much in the way of calories when you run marathons. Uh, and still to this day, I, I, you know, take in more than I did the first few marathons, but still never a whole lot. She said, if you wait till you're done marathon distance to take in calories in the ultra, you're going to die. <laughs> um, maybe not quite that strong, but basically you're, you're not going to make it if you try to do that. And so I think from the very first, um, you know, water stop, uh, I think they had uh, parboiled fingerling potatoes. And it was the weirdest thing to just grab a potato out of a bucket, um, but it really hit the spot. And uh, then I had a couple bananas. And by the time I had that third banana, um, you know, it's one of the things they teach you when you have kids, you know, it can help bind, bind you up. And so my stomach was finally feeling much better after banana number three. And I probably had, you know, five or six helpings of potatoes. Um, they didn't hand out cups. They had these little plastic, uh, plastic, I don't know what they were, what do you even call them? Plastic pouches. I don't even think it was Gatorade or Powerade. I think it was some local company that had their, you know, nutrition drink. Um, and, you know, trying to figure out how to puncture the pouch while continuing to run. I'm just like, this is too much to think about. But the main thing was, uh, again, I, I had a goal that was probably higher than I should have set. Uh, so there was this group that was aiming for a 930 and I passed them early on and they were singing what I found out later was a traditional South African mining song. Uh, you know, just, they're just chugging along, nice, easy pace. Uh, and I'm like, oh, if I can get ahead of them, I'll be in great shape. Wrong answer. They passed me later, still chugging along at their nice, easy pace, singing their traditional South African song, and they just kept right on going. Comrades is an interesting one because it's all on roads, uh, so very different than the JFK 50, which is the other uh, ultra that I've done, which only the last few miles and the very beginning is on roads. I did like the all roads part, though, compared to I'm not a big trail runner, so uh, you know, being on the Appalachian Trail for part of the JFK 50 didn't thrill me. There are some really big hills starting at mile 40, both up and down. And, and I remember we got into Durban and, you know, by then it's definitely more walking than running, although I'm still, you know, chugging along at, you know, 15 minute miles, you know, keeping up a nice brisk pace. I think it was less than uh, two, probably less than two kilometers from the finish because all their signs are in kilometers. Um, and, uh, and it was nice because they actually counted down rather than up. So you, you, I think that's actually a really good way to put out the signs on a race. That's a good strategy. In any case, you know, I'm, I'm standing next to somebody and I say to her, well, do you want to try to jog it in? Maybe we could do better together. She's like, oh, I've done this before. You know, I, I have nothing to prove. I'm like, all right, well, if you don't mind, because we, we had chatted for a bit. I'm like, if you don't mind, I'm just going to run it in. And she's like, you go for it. I'm like, okay, that, that's just, you know, it's a nice attitude, but it was nice to have somebody to chat with. And then at the end of the race, they take you into a cricket stadium. If you're running toward Durban and you run the, the outside of a cricket stadium, kind of like a lap on a track, you finish and for the international runners, there's this tent on the inside that you go to. So like I said, it's about 65, 70 degrees, so pretty warm. It was a weird ending because my body, the homeostasis was so out of whack by that point that I really wanted hot tea. I've never drunk hot tea at the end of a race before. Uh, back to Philly in 14, they had uh, hot chicken soup at the end, which at a 45 degree day is just the right thing because it's salty and it's warm and it's liquid. I never thought I was going to want hot tea in 70 degree weather, but it really did hit the spot. And then I was trying to meet my buddy and you have to get out of essentially 
now you're in the interior of the cricket stadium and people are still running around this outside ring around where you're, you're now waiting. I'm like, well, how are they going to get us out of here? And they had this makeshift steps up platform across and steps down. So the steps up, no problem. The flat across, no problem. People tried every which way to go down those steps after the 50 miles, uh, you know, at the, you know, now you got to get out of the stadium and you got to go down steps. I'm like, how am I supposed to do this? Um, some people just sat down on their bottoms and just slid down the steps like a little child. Uh, some people turned around and walked down the steps backwards. I think that was the most popular method. And a few folks just hung on to the railing for dear life and walked down front, uh, going frontwards. But I mean, it was funny of all the challenges of the race. I think I actually, you know, spent more time strategizing about how to get down those steps without killing myself than anything during the race, other than I got to get to that finish line. That's hilarious. That reminds me of a video I've seen years ago. I believe it was like the New York Times. They would film people trying to walk stairs after the New York City Marathon. And if you've ever run a marathon and you know how hard it is to go downstairs or even up them, but after a marathon. So I can just picture that. And I was going to ask you, so it's ultra marathon. So it's more than a marathon distance. How far was the mileage that you covered that day? Comrades is about 54 miles. Okay think the official distance is in kilometers, but it's, it's really, I, I remember I read the history of it at one point at this point, I don't remember the exact nature of why it goes from Peter Maritzburg to, to Durban. And even the distance has changed a little over time as they've done road improvements. But the main thing is there's, there's, you know, stadiums at both ends and, and places to start on the street at both ends. Um, again, that, that was a, a one and done. Uh, you know, I was happy to do the JFK 50 to help celebrate another runner's 50th birthday. Uh, some people said you could have just gone to Vegas. <laughs> yeah, but that, that wouldn't that wouldn't really fit my friend and, and certainly wouldn't have fit me. I don't know that I'm going to run any more marathons or ultras at this point. But if I was going to run one more ultra, I'd want to find one in the U.S. that's mostly roads, hopefully a little bit flatter. And where I wouldn't, if, if I could get through an ultra without questioning my sanity, no matter what time I would run, I would consider that an accomplishment. I was going to ask you if, if you ever were going to consider another ultra, and that was your first ultra. So that's quite an accomplishment, 54 miles, whatever that is in kilometers. I'm sure that's probably what, how they mark it, but that's very impressive. Uh, you've done two different ultras, so that was, that was uh, enough for you. <laughs> yes, indeed. You've given a TED Talk, and one of your themes of this is, is mentorship. And I think a lot of that relates with running. So can you describe the experience of giving a TED Talk and, you know, how that all came about. Uh, I guess the first thing, it's a TEDx rather than TED. Uh, I would love to give an actual TED Talk someday. The TEDx uh, talks are a little bit more local events. At Johns Hopkins, we have uh, a couple of different parts of the university that have a presence in Washington, D.C. And the student organizations of the three schools that do a lot of their work in Washington, D.C. got together to organize a, a TEDx day in, uh, I think it was 2017 that I gave my TEDx talk. And they invited me to talk about mentoring because they knew how important that was for me. Uh, I've done it working with students at my undergraduate alma mater. I've done it with people locally here in Baltimore. I mean, even those two uh, first timers I paced involved a bit of mentoring in addition to just pacing while we ran. Uh, I mean, you had, you had mentioned Lauren Lake earlier and after, I think it's been five years of an average of more than one run a week, uh, as well as two or three years of running before that. You get to know somebody pretty well, uh, you know, and when there's a, an age difference where, you know, I, there's a lot that I can comment on about life in general and careers and all kinds of things about uh, 
about how to move forward. Um, it was a fun way to present. And, you know, giving a TEDx talk or a TED talk is much like it's much like preparing for a run. You know, you've got an 18 minute window to present in. So how do you get ready for that? Um, you know, do you want to use the whole 18 minutes or do you want to leave yourself a little bit of leeway if you end up ad-libbing some on the day of the of the talk? You know, what visuals do you want to use? Um, you know, it's certainly different than giving a talk about my research where I've got, you know, regression equations and tables with data and, you know, a statement of the objective and things like that. You know, for this one, it was, you know, who are the people I've mentored? Uh, you know, and what are the messages that I have about mentoring? Jackie was among that group. We actually did a, a relay once out on the NCR trail marathon and we called our two-person team, who's the mentor? Because I had mentored her about public health and she had mentored me about running. Lauren, you know, a few other local runners and people I'd mentored in other situations. And it's really about that um, time that you spend concentrating on the other person, helping them uh, imagine either how to get to what they think is best for them or expanding their world by saying, well, that's great, but have you also thought about this? And then, you know, working with them as they think about how to get there. And, you know, one of the great things about running, if you can combine running or walking or whatever exercise where the communication can be part of it, you know, with a mentee, it's that undivided attention time. It's that time when you can say, I'm going to go walking for an hour, running for an hour. And if you get, you know, an hour, even a month, let alone a week, you can cover all kinds of topics in that time. And so, you know, I think it was, um, you know, so I was comparing the preparation and preparing for a run. So you're practicing, you're planning, you're thinking about time. You're thinking about, you know, data, quote unquote, in the sense of what am I going to be showing on the screen and what are my transitions going to be like? Um, you know, much like a run, there are some uphill parts of a presentation and some easier where you can just sort of coast parts of a presentation. I think there were probably 70-ish people in attendance. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting experience to have 70 people's attention for 18 minutes and tell, and tell a story about something that I'm quite passionate about. And so I think Again, for me, the biggest thing for anybody who really has a story they want to tell and likes the public speaking, there are all kinds of different you know, forums out there in which people can do these types of presentations. And so having that chance to convey an idea and share what your passion is with other people, to me, it's just something that I find a, a wonderful thing to be able to do. And if it helps somebody else think about how to find a mentor or how to be a better mentor and how to make a difference in at least one person's life, um, then I think my job is done. It sounds like your view on mentorship has a direct connection with running. And it reminds me a lot of being a pacer, because when you're a pacer and you're helping someone complete a race, you're really focused on what their goal is. You're trying to help them accomplish that goal. And you have to be very present and very mindful, like you were talking about before. You you have that experience when you're exercising, whether it's an hour or however long you're talking with them. You cover a lot of topics. You cover a lot of ground. So that seems like a very perfect metaphor or analogy, you know, connecting with running, mentorship and running. So that's really, really cool. So, yeah, you're definitely my first guest, whether it's a TED Talk or TEDx <laughs> Talk. That's really cool. That's very, very unique and that sounds like a really memorable experience. It was. And the other, um, locally, there's something, uh, I think they still do these every once in a while, although I don't know whether they've survived uh, social distancing of the pandemic. Uh, it's called Ignite Talks. Those are a very different format. Um, 
you know, there's the TED, TEDx, which is 18 minutes with whatever visuals you want to use. Uh, Stoop Storytelling is another local organization where it's seven minutes, no visuals. Uh, Ignite Talks are five minutes, 20 PowerPoint slides. The PowerPoint slides auto advance every 15 seconds. So once you're giving that presentation, you have no control over when the PowerPoint slides change. So that's that's actually a lot more rehearsal than a TEDx talk is because you've got to have all those timings down. And I talked about you know how running had changed for me from that data-driven, how fast can I be? How can I control my weight prior to running with others to something that was much more community giving back and almost spiritual as I see it now. So Kevin, we've talked a lot about running and I know you have some other hobbies and some other passions. So what do you like to do when you're not running? So when I'm not running, uh, I love cooking. Um, one of the reasons that I run so much is that my, especially my 15 year old and I, we like to bake a lot of bread. Uh, we've taken up uh, some homemade cheese making. Uh, so I need to run that off quite a bit. Uh, tonight we'll be having eggplant parm with homemade ricotta. Uh, so we've, we really enjoyed that quite a bit and it's a nice way to spend time, uh, with my, with my 15 year old. Uh, one thing that brings us together quite a bit, a little bit of music, uh, not to the degree that either my, uh, oldest who went to Peabody or my middle son who sang with the boy choir for 12 years, he got into music, but, uh, I have an old guitar and I'll pull it out and play a few songs. That's sort of a campfire sing-along level of playing, but it can be, it can be still a good connection. And then particularly, you know, one of the things that, uh, all that time alone early in the pandemic gave me was time to think not just about how to process things, but think creatively. And I had been, uh, you know, writing, I'd gotten back into writing poetry somewhere around 2015 and, and it accelerated quite a bit since the start of the pandemic, given that extra time that I had to think alone. That's really cool. So it sounds like you have a lot of different uh, interests and hobbies outside of running, but then at the same time, they connect back to running, right? So like you said, cooking well and eating well connects with running, right? Carbo loading, got to have that bread. And then poetry is a way to express that, that reflection time you get from running and walking and things like that. Whatever the mood strikes you when you're out on that, that run or that walk, you just think of it and then you come home and then you write it. What's that process like for you? So it's interesting. I, I just saw a quote from uh, Pablo Picasso yesterday. Uh, said inspiration is something to the effect of inspiration is out there, but you have to be working on something in order for the inspiration to occur. Something along those lines. And uh, you know, I can do all sorts of runs, and if I'm not trying to think of anything, then you know, my, my brain will just process other stuff. If I try to force myself too much, I won't think of anything either. It's just sort of being open to what I observe. So. You know, there was one about uh, these two ducks. We were, uh, me and the person I paced in 2017, we were on the promenade. We were doing a speed workout. It's about a, a half mile from the water taxi stop between the pavilions to the water taxi stop over by the Rusty Scupper. Almost exactly a half mile. So real nice if you can't get to a track. And uh, we went back and forth maybe eight times. And every time we'd go back and forth, there were these two ducks. And they just kept walking back and forth, you know, across in front of us uh, on the promenade. And, yeah, you know, I thought to myself, well, you know, what could I say about that? You know, two ducks, two people. Uh, when we ran in 2017, the, the back on my feet race T-shirt that year said, hashtag, no one runs alone. And so really thinking about that theme of no one runs alone, you know, two ducks in as, uh, you know, companions, two runners as companions. What can I say about that? And so a poem came out of that. It can be anything from that to, uh, you know, a recent time uh, running with uh, 
running with Lauren. Um, she had some extra icy pops and, uh, you know, had an icy pop afterwards and, you know, just a, a short haiku about how that felt like something back to much more normal in a summer run than we'd had up to that point in time. Sure. So it's, it's kind of your observations, it's whatever's happening. And then it just kind of comes to you and, and then you create that poem. That's really cool. And I didn't realize that, I mean, just like anything, you can write a poem about anything. There, there are a lot of poems about running and, uh, my dad, actually, he picked up a, a book. It's like literature, short stories, and poems about running. And there's a whole bunch of them. There's even ones by Walt Whitman. I didn't even know that. There's a, <laughs> there's a poem by Walt Whitman called The Runner, and there's a whole collection of other ones out there. So, yeah, that's really that's really cool and unique, and, and you're not the only one. Well, what's interesting is even thinking about uh, some spiritual connections on running uh, at uh, Jackie and Patrick's wedding. I think all three of their their readings at a standard Catholic wedding had some mention of running in them, uh, you know, and that was kind of a fascinating thing to to hear. And actually, almost every Easter since then, it's it's um, the story of you know the travelers on the road to Emmaus and how they ran back, um, you know, after after the spiritual realization that they had. And so, you know, several Easter's in a row for that weekend, I've done something to structure my run around, you know, remembering that aspect of, you know, a story from the Bible. And, you know, not that I'm an overly religious person necessarily, but just, you know, finding ways to bring my running and those connections to other parts into my everyday life and feel that connectedness is, uh, is a lovely thing to be able to do. Isn't it amazing reflecting back on your story, how, running was, you know, something you did with soccer and some of those other sports growing up. And then you were a miler in high school. And then you took maybe, I don't know, four to five years off, even longer. And then now it just is something that seems like it permeates almost every part of of your life. It does. And one of the things that, uh, you know, that I was thinking about as we were getting ready for this, you know, it's like, where did it all come from? Or, you know, why do I do this still? Uh, You know, and I think, one of the things that I thought about, I mean, pulling out my guitar and, and getting back to a few old songs, there's a, a singer songwriter. I think I heard her first on WTMD and her name is Dar Williams. And, you know, she plays these little uh, folksy kind of songs, but it was this song called The Christians and the Pagans. And it's a, a an interesting story about a, a young woman uh, calling up her uncle right around Christmas time and saying, you know, my friend and I were just celebrating solstice and could we come over for dinner? And then what transpires in the dinner uh, between these two who were, you know, honoring a pagan tradition and the the family getting ready for Christmas. But there's a line in the song that uh, says, you know, you find magic in your God and we find magic everywhere. And I'm not going to judge anybody on whether they find magic in any form of God, but the ability to find magic in every sort of run. And that's something that I, I really bring with me these days and doesn't feel like magic when I leave every morning necessarily, but it's always magic when I come back. And uh, there's a later line in that song about the magic is in the learning. And so it's always a goal. I'm going to learn something about myself. I'm going to learn something about nature, or I'm going to learn something about, you know, uh, the person I'm running with on the run today. And it doesn't have to be anything profound, but if that's the, the approach I take for each and every run, it's a lot different than, hey, have I hit the, the times on this track workout that Shannon laid out for me when I was trying to get my PR in 2014. That's such a great mindset to have, you know, we're going to be grateful for each run and, and the magic that you can find within. And if you have that mindset going into it, every run is going to be wonderful and, and you're going to come away with something from it. So that's really a great way to look at it. And I think a lot of listeners out there probably have 
chase numbers and chase times. And, you know, those goals are great to have. But then at the same time, you have to remember, you know, why did you become a runner to begin with? You know, like, what is it about the sport that you love? And when you get it down to a simple level, you're always going to get some enjoyment out of it. So, Kevin, just a few more questions. I'm being very gracious with your time. Sure. I do know that you've been dealing with um, some injuries recently. So I wanted to ask what kind of injury, I think it was your knee injury. What have you learned from, from dealing with your knee injury and, and the process of you know, uh, rehabbing and, and getting better? So I learned a couple of things from this particular knee injury. The first is if you're going to go to PT, don't wait two months before you even start going to PT. You know, if, if it's injured, it's injured and, and find a way to get to care sooner than that. It had been quite some time since I'd seen a primary care physician. Uh, so when I finally saw one, I got her to, you know, give me a recommendation for PT. And now that I will hopefully have a renewed relationship with the primary care doc, if anything like this comes up again, I'll be a lot quicker next time. So that was one thing. Second thing, when you have close enough uh, running companions, if you got to walk for a while, they'll usually find a way to make it work for them too. And to keep up those, uh, those important uh, relationships of, you know, people who, you know, sometimes you're working out things on your own and sometimes it's good to have somebody to bounce ideas off of while you're, while you're you know, running or walking. And then, you know, I finally, uh, I got to get on a, a running analysis treadmill. Um, and that was really instructive. Uh, you know, the PT first, he said, well, let's try balancing on each leg. And um, I could balance a lot longer on my right leg than my left leg. He said, well, despite the fact that it's your right knee that's the problem, this is telling me your right leg is a lot stronger than your left leg. So all these exercises I'm giving you, don't do them just for your right leg. Do them for the left leg too, so we can make that left leg stronger because maybe the right leg's overcompensating. He looked at my form. He said, you got pretty bad form. You know, not in so many words, but that was the gist of it. And uh, worked on getting my hips in place, which I'm going to have a lot of work to do. Uh, but you know, I said, if you can get your hips in place, take shorter, quicker steps, that'll help you. Cause you'll land more lightly. And then the third thing was, you know, these are things you don't even think about. Uh, he said, you know, your left knee bends to cushion your fall, your right knee, it's not landing straight, but it doesn't bend and it's not cushioning your fall at all. So, you know, he gave me three things to work on. That was just my most recent visit. So I'll see what happens the next time I go back. And I said to him, that's a lot to think about while I'm running. He said, do you want to keep running in a healthy way? I said, yeah, I do. He said, then, you know, I don't care how much your, your running up to this point has been intentional. You have to do much more intentional running if you want to keep running healthy. And I think that's, a, that's an important thing. I mean, it's going to take up a lot of my mind space and maybe leave less mind space for some of these other things, um, at least until I have revised my habits. And, you know, and again, if I do it enough and do it well enough, then it should just become habit, but it's going to take me a while to get there. Cause I haven't thought about those things in my running for, well, since I started running back in 1984. So, uh, there, there's a lot to, a lot of time to fix. Sure. And you've had success, right? You've been running the way you've always been running for a while, but now you've come to a point where, Hey, maybe you need to make some changes. And as runners, I feel like we're very stubborn. How you were mentioning before you took a while to, to make your medical appointments, I feel like when, at least for myself personally, when anytime I've been injured, usually there's, there's a period of time where I'm like, uh, I'm not, maybe I'm not injured and maybe it's like a denial period. <laughs> and, and then eventually there's an acceptance and then there's, all right, what am I going to do to solve this problem? How am I going to be better? And it is amazing that when you work with professionals, like a PT or something, they're able to see like, wait, there's an imbalance here. Like your right leg is super strong, but your left side of your body is, is weak. And that's the reason why you're having the, pro you know, it's amazing how our bodies 
we're are meant to run in so many ways, but if we don't work on some of these weak areas, then it can lead to injury. And it sounds like you have kind of some homework to do, which is a good thing. Um, but also it, it's, it's a cha- it's a new challenge for you. Yep. So Kevin, just a, a final question, because I feel like we've touched on a lot of these other things and, and you probably summed it up or you've hit, hit this in so many of your answers, but why do you love running? So I love running because it can be so many different things at different times. If you'd like me to read one poem, I actually could because I've I've written one that really does sum it all up. That would be great. All right. So this is called Chances and Choices. In running, I can make choices, choices that are molded to the chances in my life. On a nothing but frustrating day, I can run the shortest intervals, pounding my feet on the track, pounding the frustrations into the surface, burying them forever, burning negative energy out of the world. Or I can choose longer intervals to the point of exhaustion where I am gasping for air and thoughts of anything but speed and survival flow away from my soul, spiritual refreshment. Or I can run with a friend, maybe I saw her last week, or it may have been years. Either way, the conversation picks up wherever it left off and it can be about anything. We share undivided attention. How rarely does that occur? Running can be me time, or running can be we time. The we can be just one, or a crew with a unified purpose to create community, a community of positive energy, a community of support. Running can be goal-oriented, building over weeks, months, or years to a conclusion that yields joy via a sense of accomplishment, alone, or with a companion on the journey, the journey of running, and more importantly, of life. Running can also be about not having any goal, other than to find serenity, serenity and acceptance in a life full of unknowns. I know I can have time, time to myself just to think or just to be, just be me, searching to enable the best version of me I can be. Running can be family, family by blood, marriage, or choice, time spent together, showing up and being there consistently to do more than just hear, to carefully listen and comprehend, to be present so a fellow runner knows someone cares. Running can be any of these, as life throws positive and negative chances my direction. Running is a choice, how I use running is a choice, the choices I make to manage every single step that I run, provide the energy I need to light paths to choose hope at every step that brings me to diverging roads in life. That was really beautiful, Kevin. And I think that's just a perfect place to end our conversation. So Kevin Frick, thank you so much for being on the For Love of Running podcast. Thank you, Jeremy. How can I follow up that amazing poem about running? Chances and choices. Not only in running, but we all have choices and chances in life. That poem is a strong example of how running connects us to everyday living. Kevin was a thoughtful guest that has spent time reflecting on what running means to him. If you want to see his TEDx talk about mentorship and how running plays a role, see the link in the show notes. A special thank you to Lauren Lake for helping set up this interview. It was a memorable one, for sure. Thanks to the podcast team. Thanks to Elisa from Red Star Creative for our logo. Thank you to John Vogel for the original music and my producer, John Stevens. And finally, thanks to you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Running. You have a lot of podcast choices out there. I appreciate you choosing this one.
If you like what you hear, please review us on Apple Podcast or wherever you are listening. Share this with your running community and connect with us on social media at For the Love of Running Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, I'm your host, Jeremy Stevens. Happy running! <laughs>